you know, we are here to be absolutely committed to our clients, their financial success, and doing everything we can to make sure that their financial lives are optimized against what's possible. And it isn't about EBOC, you know. I mean, if you're working for money, go. You know, I hate to be crass. Go someplace else. We we are 100% responsible for our clients' lives. And whatever you have to invest in that to do it, do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, really excited to be uh, conducting this, this webinar. It feels like I've been in this business for 37 years and over and over I'm asked, when is the right time to reinvest? When do I take my firm to the next level? Is it worth taking a step back to go forwards? At what point do I invest in a case design department or a portfolio management department? So with that, we put together a wonderful white paper, Time for Growth, which I think in building your organization, which is available to everyone watching the webinar. But additionally, we're going to talk to two firms who have actually done it and one of the best consultants I've ever worked with in the industry, Philip Palatman. So with that, let me start by uh, introducing our firms or having them introduce them themselves. Mike, Tom, why don't we start with Mike? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your firm? Hi, I'm Mike Frazier, President and CEO of Bedell Frazier Investment Counseling. We're in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the roots of the firm go back to 1975. We're actually one of the first women-founded firms in the RIA industry. Uh, I joined the firm in 2002, became a partner in 2004 as part of a succession plan, and started buying into the firm. And we grew quite nicely. That was part of my goal was putting together a growth plan. And by the time that we cleared 500 million under management, we felt some natural growing pains. And that's where we sought out a partner and joined uh, Blue Spring. So my name is Tom Fee. Uh, the firm is Vector Wealth Management. We're based in Minneapolis. Uh, I started the firm in 1993 with... Uh, about three million under management, and it was kind of a mid-career thing. Came into the financial service industry about a year and a half before that with the man who had managed my money and decided I wanted to go straight fee-based. So today we have uh, about we have 21 employees, about a billion four under management, roughly 900 clients, and we uh, it did make it. You know, I thought I was going to stay independent, quite frankly, for the run, but. As I evaluated different decision points, it seemed wise to seek an affiliation partnership, and I did so two years ago with Blue Spring. Thanks, Tom. And, and Philip, real briefly, why don't you talk about your firm, and then we'll dig into specifics on Mike and Tom's structure, infrastructure. Very much. I, I, you know, we're very proud and happy to be members of the advisory community and really help advisory firms make good business decisions. Uh, so as consultants, we get involved and bring our data, our experience, our expertise into business planning meetings when the topics are building an organization, compensating staff, organizing your team, creating career tracks, perhaps career tracks leading to equity for advisory firms, ownership agreements, and generally any kind of strategic questions that advisors are looking to answer. Uh, so myself and my colleagues get very involved in leadership development as well. We run the G2 Leadership Institute, which gives us the chance to work with many, many, many of the very talented future generation leaders in the industry. And we have very much enjoyed that interaction, too. And, you know, these white papers and these discussions that we have, they're really just the product of all the data that we collect, but also the many, many conversations with entrepreneurs like Tom, like Mike, and like you, Stuart, because you are the quintessential entrepreneur yourself. Thank you. So with that, let's go back to Mike for a minute. Since this webinar and white paper are all about when to invest and how do you build on infrastructure, 
Mike, could you give us a little bit more detail about the firm, such as the types of departments and structure you've invested in, how you set up internally? Right. So, I mean, we're a traditional investment management firm. Uh, we customize portfolios with individual stocks and bonds. We also have a financial planning offering, and that's an area that we've really invested fairly heavily in the last couple of years, because that's really where the demand seems to be going in certainly our client base, but I think the industry in general. We do everything in-house, which I think it's important. You know, we outsource what we can institutionalize so we can really focus on the personalization in-house. How about you, Tom? How are you structured internally? Thank you. So uh, early on, one of my first clients who's a kind of a chief strategist at 3M said, Tom, I like you, but uh, what happens when you get hit by a bus? And, you know, I often tease him, you know, I was 28 years ago and he went off to play golf and I've been obsessing about uh, what I think is the most important thing is that clients have a permanent relationship with a firm. So early on, we tried to, tried to break it apart. We have the advisor, you know, today is the, gen the completion of the genesis of that, which was an advisory group. And that's the advisor to act as the quarterback for the client into the firm. We have our advanced planning group where I would say probably 65 to 75% of all client interaction happens. They're young CFPs that uh, allow the advisors to perhaps have more relationships, but yet there's a real quick turnaround when clients need information. And then we have the portfolio management group, which has uh, five individuals in it and uh, their responsibility is to bring information forward to the investment committees so we can make global decisions on portfolios, advisors all buy in, and then they are to execute tightly against the plan that we've designed by each for each client. So it's it's really very much around a firm relationship that we don't cannot get rogue advisors. And 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 I think that also ties the client closer to the firm, which is what we want to do. Well it's it's just to go a little deeper on that, Tom. The first time I met you, I kept thinking of Philip because he's he wrote the book, The Ensemble Practice, and your business truly represented to me what a true ensemble should look like, especially when you shared with me how much time, what percent of the client time do you expect do you expect an advisor to spend? I mean, how much of their time is spent in the client piece if you look at the allocation of portfolio design and financial planning and whatnot? Well, we, uh, it's, it's, that's a good question. Important one to us is we've got, you know, the other thing we did is I had written a couple of applications for, for the industry and one we've re retained as proprietary, but that application really tries to drill in to give the client a good visibility on, on what it is that their assets, we're asking their assets to do for them. But it also integrates all that information once we're in a meeting back to the client straight back into the portfolio management group so that uh, the portfolio management group, if you looked at 100%, probably the PMG does probably 15 to 20% of the interaction. The advanced planning is around, you know, 60 to 65. So really, as far as touch other than meetings, I want less of that to come from the advisor because for economies of scale and also tying the client more closely into the firm, it, that's kind of how it shake, has shaken out. Yeah, that really stood out in my mind because it frees up an advisor time to really spend time on relationships and, and whatnot. Well, speaking of that, you're both CEOs. And one of the questions that we have, it sounds basic, but Mike and I were talking about this before the, this session, 
What does a CEO, CEO do in an advisory firm? A lot of firms talk about hiring a CEO. When did each of you start feeling like a CEO? And what's the most difficult aspect of being a CEO and the most exciting aspect, the most exciting part? I think we'll start with you, Mike, if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. It's a good question. You know, I, I formally became CEO in 2013, but like most boutique firms, the CEO plays multiple roles, you know, I mean, wears many hats. I feel like during the pandemic was when I really focused on being the CEO, the face of the firm, um, you know, focusing on client communications, client experiencing, and making sure that our company, you know, was positioned to deal with whatever was coming our way, you know, that the uncertainty um, during the pandemic. You know, I love the intellectual challenge. You know, I mean, it's an entrepreneurial industry, the RIA space. You know, our industry is dominated by creative thinkers. And, you know, I feel like I have my finger on the pulse of planet Earth as an investor and working very closely with really good people and making a positive impact on their lives. So I think that's the challenge of, you know, being a market professional and dealing with individual challenges. But at the same time, you know, our clients are a why and that gets me excited. Tom, how about you? When did you become a CEO and what's the, what's been the evolution? Yeah, again, good question. Also, I just have to comment for general consumption. Uh, Mike and or his firm communicate daily on a daily basis with their clients. It just is, we used to struggle to get a quarterly together then we went to a weekly. And, and it's nice even to share resources, Mike, some of the content that you have is just quite excellent. The fact you can pull that off is just amazing to me. But, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I, I thought about that question. I got to give a little bit of background context is that in two thousand we had been, I've been thinking about, you know, we we're about five, 600 million as a firm. And, and, you know, there's that, that challenge of getting from 600 and I think in the, the scalability really, it would kick in in my mind. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Around eight to nine hundred million, and so I'd been looking at, you know, not only the organic but inorganic growth for a while. And in 2017, uh, there was a firm that we had talked to previously, but I wasn't so crazy about one of the principals there. And they came back and said, "Well, minus that principal, would you be interested in a merger?" And I said, "Absolutely." And and so when we came together. And now we got this merger done and I'm thinking, well, you got two separate cultures and you're trying to bring this together. There's a lot of things that Vector did that we're going to lay across the firm that we merged with. But I said, how do you take these diverse cultures and experiences? And so I, I, I instituted this, uh, suggested something called Traction, which is an, a kind of an entrepreneurial operating system that created structure around meetings and communications and goal setting objectives and reviews and all this stuff. And so what we did is we kind of came together as, you know, it, all of us doing this at the first time. And, and so to, when you asked that question, I was thinking, you know what, that's when it was, is because it was no longer Pee Wee's Playhouse. You know, if I want to invest 200 grand into Sojourn and, and elevate our planning tool, I could just do that. But now I had new relationships, new responsibilities, trying to get this firm to go from 12 up to, we were up at 24 at one point before we made a decision to, during COVID to say, you know, we're overstaffed. And so it was that moment where I I had to step back and say, I have broader responsibilities now and, and need to act differently. So let me, let me jump. This is about, uh, I really want the audience to get as much as they can. We've got two really different sized firms that are both 
some of the most efficiently run, most profitable firms I've seen and very growth oriented. And we've got this guru on consulting who does all the industry studies. So with that, I'm going to go to our first audience question, which, Philip, you might want to start on this one. But what's your process for establishing the profit margin range you prefer and determining how much you want to spend in key categories such as marketing, technology, human capital? And again, you do all this study, so I can't think of a better panel to kind of address this question. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, at this point in time, we have a lot of data from the industry, which allows us to at least point out what is what is normal. What do most firms experience? At least for the last 20 years or so, the standard for profitability has been at least a 25% profit margin. Somewhere between 25 and 35 is where most successful firms would be running. And then if you exceed 35, and to some degree, that's like, hey, good news, we are very profitable. But to some degree, that's also a cause to scratch your head and wonder, hey, are we perhaps underinvesting? Are we perhaps overlooking an investment that we should be making? And that investment most likely is an investment in people because advisory firms, most of all, spend their money on people. But perhaps it's another investment in marketing, perhaps another investment in technology as well. Um, generally speaking, 75%, statistically speaking, of the expenses of an advisory firm are people-based. 75% of the expenses, not 75% of the revenue. So if you suspect that you are underinvesting in your firm, probably the first place to look is, do we have enough people? Um, of course, it's also an important question. Are we making our people productive? Are we deploying them the right way? Um, generally, most advisory firms don't invest enough in marketing. Uh, on average, advisory firms invest at least 3% of their revenue in marketing. Um, but an ambitious firm perhaps should be investing 5 6 7% or more. Of course, it really depends on how you grow. Um, are you growing as a marketing organization? Are you growing more through traditional networking and referral-based strategies? Whatever may helps you grow. But statistically speaking, those would be the answers. 25% profit margin probably at least 75% of your expenses will be focused on people. And then I would probably say, look to spend at least 5% of your revenues in marketing. That will probably be a healthy amount. And so that would be EBITDA-based, earnings-based, not EBOC-based, correct? Uh, yeah, you know, to the degree possible, I would love for this entire profession to forget about EBOC. EBOC is sort of a fake measure. You know, not everything that shines is gold and not everything that looks like income is profit. Um, EBOC is what you take home, but it's not really the profitability of your business. So if you're aspiring to build an organization, build a real business, you should get in the habit of, learning, of looking at profits, not just income. And again, the difference between EBOC, earnings before owner compensation, and EBITDA, earnings before income taxes, depreciation, and amortization, the difference between the two is owner compensation. Uh, you as a business owner, you need to realize that your time has value, has a lot of value. Uh, you as an employer also need to realize that your fellow partners need to get compensated for the effort that they put into the business. So ideally, you forget about EBOC and really start thinking about what is the operating profit of the firm after fair compensation for all the owners and everyone involved in the business. And that will be the 25% I'm talking about. And, and right. Stuart, if I could weigh in just for a second on that, because there's a, 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 everything Philip says, I, I agree with. But there's another side too, and that, this is just personally, I have to say, is that you know we are here to be absolutely committed to our clients, their financial success, and doing everything mm -hmm. we can to make sure that their financial lives are optimized against what's possible. And it isn't about EBOC, you know. I mean, it, if you're working for money, go. 
You know, I'd hate to be crass. Go someplace else. We, we are 100% responsible for our clients' lives. And whatever you have to invest in that to do it, do it. On the other side, from a marketing standpoint, yeah, I'd make one statement is, look, if you had $90,000 that you could distribute to your partners and have $45,000 over taxes divided by three, is it worth getting 15000 bucks, or would you rather have a $90,000 marketing position in there to help you, without any degradation to your clients, reach more people? Yeah, Tom like, brings up really good points, and I think it's, I mean, important we all understand that this is a disruptive time and we're certainly in a disruptive industry and, you know, IT budgets, marketing budgets, you know, those are increasing, but we made a big bet on our human capital a few years ago as well, because, you know, the client experience is really driven by our employees. And the way we see it is we take care of our employees. They're going to have a positive interaction with our clients and, you know, it's the give a damn attitude, you know? And I think that, you know, I'd say to my team all the time, we're in the business of life. You know, there's so much value beyond the portfolio and it's a relationship-based industry. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Systems and software, artificial intelligence, of course, they're going to play a role and it's going to be important to stay ahead of that, right? To anticipate. But at the end of the day, people want to be taken care of and they want to work with someone who's going to have their back. And when they're facing adversity, they're going to be dealing with someone who has some answers and the courage to tell them what they need to know, not necessarily what they want to know. And I'll jump in here because I'm seeing some really good questions from the audience. Like, how do you look at EBOC versus EBITDA as someone who's built businesses and, and, and sold them and who now buys businesses? Understand that investing in your business is something we we as acquirers understand you're always doing. And whenever someone's going to monetize their business, we're going to normalize everything. But that's why when you look at EBOC, it sort of becomes irrelevant because when we buy a business, we're going to say, what would it cost to replace you? What's the normal compensation for a CEO, for a COO, or things like that? So again, the question on EBOC versus EBITDA is, what's the true profitability if we normalize those expenses and look at you as a standalone business? But with that, Philip, one of the things that I'm curious is why firms struggle to find out when and how to invest in the organization. Uh, you, you work with a lot of different firms in the consulting capacity, but how do we put it into words? When do you in, when do you invest, and why do firms struggle at not knowing when and how? Well, I, you know, um, there are probably two types of investing in the business. Uh, one is just the normal course of running the business requires you to continue updating things. It's a little bit like um, maintaining your house. You know, at the end of the day, every evening you turn off the lights, and you you know you turn off the faucet when you're done using the shower, and just kind of you maintain the house in its normal running, if you will, which is the same with the business. You you need another employee, you hire them, uh, you need to change compensation, you do so, you need to share the success, uh, you offer bonuses, you understand that your technology may be falling behind, you reinvest in technology. I would probably describe that kind of investment as incremental. You just do what you needs to be done. But also in the, the evolution of the business, there are some sort of leaps that you need to take. There are material changes that change not just incrementally the quantitative characteristics of the business, but change it qualitatively. It changes from one form to another. Where it's like human beings, you know, kind of go through some forms of transformation. We are infants first, but then we learn to walk and then we become children. And then, you know, children become teenagers because they're on their way to becoming becoming grown-ups. And then teenagers go to college and graduate and they suddenly become adults. And then, you know, adults age and they become seniors. And 
you know, these are sort of phases of life uh, where, yeah, you are a human being and incrementally your clothes are changing and your size is changing. Mine seems to be changing in the wrong direction all the time. I need to buy, uh, you know, larger and larger sizes. But it's good to incrementally understand the incremental investment. But sometimes you have to make a material major investment in the business that sort of takes you to that notion of the next level. And there was a question, well, what's the next level? Well, it's kind of like the transition between being an adolescent and being an adult. Uh, one prepares you for the other, but you kind of have to take on a lot more responsibilities. And that's the notion of reinvesting in the business. That first transition comes at the point when you realize you have become a business. When have you become a business? My good friend, Greg Friedman, actually puts it very nicely. He says, you're a real business when you have a client you haven't personally met. In other words, when you as the founder realize that somebody else is bringing clients to the business and servicing those clients. And that's the first transition. It's the transition from a practice to a business. The second transition is from a business uh, which runs as a small family, a group of people that are united by the shared mission and vision to an organization, an organization that starts to be a little more abstract and exists outside of the founders. And that's the time when you need to reinvest in the infrastructure of that business. You need to be thinking about who's going to manage it. You need to be thinking about how do we communicate you need to be thinking, how are we organized? How do we make decisions? Things become from informal and relatively fluid and easy to much more formalized and perhaps even a little bit of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is not necessarily a bad word. And then there are further transformations down the road when you suddenly have two offices rather than just one, when you have so many partners that you can't really put them together in the same room or the same pub anymore. Um, those are all transformations that you have to look into. So you constantly incrementally reinvest into the business, but there are a few times to remodel the house when you have to sort of blow up a few rooms and put something new together because what you used to do is not sufficient anymore. And that's really what we're trying to highlight in this paper. What are exactly the times to blow up the, you know, the kitchen and, and remodel it because you know, the old kitchen is just not going to be enough for the new bigger family. When we talk about reinvesting in a business, there's so many different ways to do it. And one thing I would mention is the white paper that, that we put together, anyone can get, you can get right here on the site or we'll send it off to you, but it really gets into what do these investments look like? What are you paying people? How do you structure their roles, et cetera? But there's, to me, reinvestment comes in many forms. I was taught very early in this business that marketing solves all problems. As you bring in new business, you create more revenue, revenue is growth, and growth helps give you the, the, the capital. But we're also going to talk about that in relation to when do you invest in operations? When do you invest in a COO at what, what age and stage? But I'd like to stop and start with business development and go back to Mike and Tom for a minute. And I know that we, Philip has told me he sees many firms struggling to grow and develop business developers. Yet from our work with both Mike and, and Tom, I've seen your firms have done a really good job with this. How do you do that? How do you how do you make sure that you grow your firm and that you're training your own business developers, especially the G2s, the next generation? Mike, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that first. Um, so, I mean, it's super important. I, you know, what I've found is, you know, the the next generation are very bright, you know, very skilled, but oftentimes they walk into a firm and they inherit a book of business or relationships. You know, they haven't had to go and make it rain. And, you know, I find that at our firm, I see it in the industry. You know, they're really good at catching rain, but making rain, it's a different type of skill set. And so that's where we're really focusing on recognizing referable moments. You know, we've never been successful in having a business development officer. You know, all the times that we participated in the Schwab or TD referral program, 
you know, the branch managers would always say, it's like, hey, no one can tell your story like you do. And it's like, okay, well, I, I can't be in the, in the branch every day or every week. So I want it to be a quality interaction, you know, not quantity. But, you know, part of it, you know, it's DNA, you know, it's having the ability to sell and recognize opportunity and referable moments. But the other part is just, you know, training and studying success. And we do a lot of that internally here. Um, how about you? I'd love you to talk about business development, but also my next question would be related to marketing, because I know you have Ezra, a full-time marketing person on staff. Talk about that as well, because I think a lot of firms struggle with when do we invest in marketing? Okay, well, the uh, to, to touch in on the that, and and I and I know that to hire someone to just market the firm to just be that that rainmaker is really challenging. If they are a rainmaker, they're in our business and they're successful as an advisor and perhaps in a firm. It's and it, you, do you find them in a merger or? or but I think it's just really challenging. But the, one of the challenges we had early on was that we were we're probably one of 10 or 15 firms that were in the original Schwab referral program. Uh, and so we had we had a, an individual within the firm that was centrally responsible for that and also happened to be a pretty good rainmaker. So a lot of the relationships that have filtered for, through the firm are, like Mike said, they're there are folks that haven't had to go out there and find them. You know, it's, you know, I, I don't like this term, but it does crystallize things. Uh, it's somebody in the, in the suitability side said to this to me once. He said, they're declawed cats on the, on this side of the business. They, they don't want to sell product. They want to sell a service to, to help successfully manage wealth. And that doesn't necessarily correlate with being the best salesperson, if I can use that term. So, but we had this need. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to find that and this merger was good for us is that they were in the TD program. One of their principals was a former employee of Schwab. So familiar with Schwab, familiar with TD. We're looking for a younger blood to go into those offices, like Mike said, because it's it's a daunting task to stay present when you're going against Creative or Mariner or, or Wealth Enhancement Group, these multi, multi, multi-billion dollar firms. How do you stay present and relevant? So that that merger helped solve part of that problem, but it didn't change the problem of, of organic growth. And so what we've really done, and Mike said it lightly, I'd say it more specifically, is that we haven't done as good a job as we could have at at having our clients refer more people in. So we literally in our in our systems, we said, okay, one of our, our three-year objectives was to have 50% of all new clients coming from client referrals. And and in less than 18 months after refocusing, and now we've got it up to like 71, well past our objectives. And if anybody knows anything about statistics, they'd raise the question and say, well, are you satisfied with your growth? Is that 71% representative of a number that you're really seeking? And I have to honestly say no, but it is a significant change. And it's because we really focused on, and I think Mike, you called it referable moments where, where we're just trying to get our clients more engaged in our success, be out of their satisfaction with what we do. Yeah. And I think an important point, and it's human nature, you could draw a bell curve and there's some clients who just are going to, you know, recommend us. They're going to tell our name to all their friends and family. They just love to be that person and recommend, you know, their, their firm. 
or, or advisor. And then on the other side, you have people who under no circumstances will they refer, whether it's privacy or comfort level, whatever. But the opportunity obviously lies well in between. And that's where it's important to really establish these relationships and make sure that clients are experiencing the value, right? You can't just assume they experience. They've got to engage it for them to really assign a value. And I think that's the opportunity. And that's what we really emphasize here internally. I would... Uh... And I would add that, uh, and, I, and I love both of your comments and watching you guys live, eat, and breathe it. One of the things I'd encourage founders of firms, making rain, building business relationships, networking, working with other professionals, attorneys and accountants, and I know we have a bunch of them on this line today, that doesn't come always naturally to the next generation of advisors. So I think we owe it to them. Those of us who started our own firms from scratch and had to eat what we kill, that was an experience, and I think we learned the hard way. But in this era, in this day and age of technology and social media and whatnot, and, and also with this great group of mentors and an aging population of advisors, I think we owe it to that next generation to teach them how to fish, how to make rain, how to, inter how to network, and how to grow their businesses. I know we at Blue Spring have taken it to a different level. We brought, we do actual consulting and kind of work with our, our, our G2s, as we call them, to talk about how do you do this, how do you market, how do you generate leads, and do what Tom did naturally. And I love that 71% statistic, Tom, because I knew you when, when it was swayed the other way. And we see so many firms dependent on some of the custodians' lead gen programs. And as they dry up, as we just saw with one of the firms that got acquired by another, things change. So I think teaching self-sufficiency to not just founders, but successors and to your whole ensemble practice will make everybody a lot more successful and will create this ongoing momentum of business constantly coming in, constant growth, which creates revenue, which gives you the opportunity to continue to reinvest in the business. But with that, Philip, you and I have debated this to the wee hours of the morning, usually over a, a late night drink, but I know you've been in time somewhat skeptical of professional business developers, but we now have some examples of how business development officers can be helpful. So I'd be curious, would you argue with what Tom's doing? What's your take on all that? You know, I, to, a, to a degree, I would love for us, all of us, to forget terms like rainmaker uh, and, and, you know, similar terminology. We don't look at doctors as rainmakers. Um, they just simply help people who need their help. And I think ideally, the, in general, the younger people joining the advisory industry will feel a lot more comfortable if we don't talk about rainmaking, but we simply talk about helping more clients, helping more people that need help. Uh, at the end of the day, we're not selling something consumers don't need. We are ideally helping them solve problems that they have, things that keep them awake at night. So we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be thinking of that process as some sort of a magical, perhaps slightly coercive exercise. It should be a natural dynamic where those that need help just find us. In many ways, first of all, more than 70% of the leads in our industry are generated by existing clients. And honestly, a firm that is meet, meeting its growth targets based on client referrals, I would probably say that's a wonderful firm. It doesn't need to do anything else. There's all kinds of research that indicates that clients who arrive from referral are more profitable, they stay longer. They're also much more likely to become the kind of raving fans that actually tell everybody about the business. Um, they're also the kinds of clients that stay with you through tougher times, times when perhaps the market is not as good as it has been. So nothing wrong with referrals, as long as we also continue to network as a firm and let the world know what we do and how we do it and why it's actually attractive to work with us. 
If that's in place, I'm very skeptical, first of all, of this theory that we need some kind of a special human being to develop new business. I'm actually very skeptical of the pseudoscientific research that somehow you need extroverts to be business developers. First of all, I'm an introvert myself. Um, I, I think I've done just fine as a business developer. And I think the same is true for many other successful professionals. They're not necessarily extroverts running around the neighborhood telling everybody to do business with them. They're just very helpful. Um, they just do a very good job with existing clients and those clients are willing to talk about it. But you do have to be able to answer basic questions such as what do we do? How is it helpful to people and what's compelling about it? And if we can answer these questions, then we can teach others how to answer these questions too. And generally speaking, G2s become good business developers as long as they've been mentored well. I mean, Stuart, you and I, you know, we share this experience because when we met, I actually had never skied in my life. And then you were an amazing skier because you grew up skiing. And then over the years, I mean, I learned to ski. Um, skiing is not something that you have to be born with a natural talent to figure out how to do. Uh, if you're naturally talented, you may become a better skier, but at the end of the day, everybody can ski. And the problem with skiing is the first couple of seasons are kind of frustrating. Uh, when you're learning to ski, you fall down a lot, you tumble down the slope, you have snow in your pants, it's kind of frustrating, the kids are making fun of you because you're learning with kids. But, you know, give yourself a couple of seasons and you will become a good skier. Um, just you have to endure a little bit of frustration. And the same is true with business development. I, I think young professionals who have been patiently mentored at the right time in their career can and will become good business developers. They just need pensions and they need mentoring. Uh, but too often we let them quit in the first season because, you know, they try skiing and they fall down the first lesson they ever take and they say, oh, this is not for me. I'm not born to ski. Well, nobody's born to ski in their first lesson. It takes at least a dozen. So we did, we just need encouragement and patience. It's not like somehow this is something magical that happens to a few people but doesn't happen to most. It's something that everyone can learn. And I think that's my problem is unfortunately just because the founders have figured out how to be business developers doesn't mean that they know how to coach business development. I'm a pretty decent soccer player. I'm a miserable soccer coach. I've tried. Um, and I think that's the difference is, you know, those that are the best players are not always the best coaches. It takes someone who actually has a sincere interest in developing the careers of others. And not every founder is good at that. So I think organizations have to find not only who are the, the good business developers, but also who are the good mentors, uh, who are the people that are capable of coaching others. And can we ask them for help in developing our future business developers? To answer the actual question you asked, rather than the 10 minutes of other stuff that I just offered, you know, professional business developers, dedicated business developers tend to get their best results when you have an institutional sorts of leads. In other words, you can go somewhere and capture some leads that someone else generated for you. And, and I think that has been to a degree, the secret of Tom's success using dedicated business developers is Tom is is using the referral generating sources such as the custodians, and that lends itself to professional business developers. Otherwise, in most contexts, I think clients have a little bit of this problem of, hey, I really like the person who was talking to me about your firm, except for they went away, and now I'm working with this person. That's sort of a bait and switch is, is a problem for, for most clients. They want to talk to the person who's gonna be working with them uh, rather than a professional salesperson. Just like when I go to the doctor, I want to talk to the doctor, not some some kind of an administrator that's going to sell me on, on a procedure that I may or may not need. I am mm -hmm. curious, 
the business development group gets a lot of attention. The advisory department gets a lot of attention in firms. What about operations? Who are the leaders in the operations department? And I guess I, I turn to Mike and, and Tom. Do you have a CEO? And, and Philip, you too, when should a firm be adding a COO? Because that's, that's when you become a real business as well. But Mike, Tom, where do you want to take that one to start? Yeah, that, that was an important role for us too. And as I mentioned, you know, around 2017 is when we started facing some of those natural growing pains and, you know, making sure that we had someone running the daily business instead of the business running us. And I think, you know, people have heard that term a lot. So we brought on a director of systems and operations and she's not client facing, but she makes sure that, you know, the trains are running on time, if you will. It's an important role because the person who is, you know, playing the COO is also responsible for a lot of client relationships. And when we I found that when we really grow to, you know, a critical mass, we really needed to embrace more specialization. And that's where we built out our operations team that works with our broker dealer to service, you know, clients. And we, we brought in an additional person because the demand is so strong. So I think it's really important just to frame out, you know, the area of specialization, you know, identifying what roles are, are most important, what our value proposition is, and how we're going to execute that. And it's important because we don't want to institutionalize too much. You know, part of it is maintaining the secret sauce and that boutique, you know, you know, personalized experience. And so that's where I found that I can play a better role as CEO while we have someone who's not client facing that's going to make sure that everything gets done on a daily basis. How about you, Tom? COO, what's your experience been? <clears throat> well, we've uh, we don't we haven't done that, but I have to go back to you know with this book traction, and it's an entrepreneurial's operating system, and it and what you do we've with our portfolio management group they have a they have a, a leadership meeting every week. We have the advanced planning group that has one. We have the advisory group that has one. They're very tightly structured. And, and then within, and then we have a leadership group that has a meeting once a week. And within the leadership group, what's happened is we've taken the role of the potential role of the COO and a lot of it has fallen to the gentleman that heads up our portfolio management group. Yet some other things have moved over into the advanced planning group. There are some crossovers. So we're basically taking that there is an operational role and there's very specific responsibilities, but we haven't named a, a, a COO perhaps because we're, we're enlarging what we want that COO position to be in charge of. But I, I, I think about this as a guy who's got been bone on bone in both knees for 17 years. And I've gone into my surgeon. I've said, you know, it's done. I'm sick of my right knee. And while you're in there, do the left knee. And so we talked for a little bit and I'm still on the original equipment. And, and what I hear from people is you'll absolutely know when you need knee surgery. And I think I, I just don't feel how we've structured the firm within traction and divided and responsibilities that we're at that point where it's required yet. So it, it, it's a structural issue. Mike, a little bit smaller and less employees has done that successfully. We've chosen to divide and conquer. Yeah. And I would just oh, add that it was, I'm sorry, but it was really important for us to transition, you know, into the virtual world that we had people that were really focused. We were already operating in the cloud, but we had to go turn things around really quickly within 24 hours and we were successful. And that allowed the people who are responsible for the client relationships to be client facing while the machine kept running. And we have we still have daily 
um, you know, staff meetings. You know, we have weekly client experience meetings and, you know, the same person is overseeing it and overseeing the team and making sure that continuity is gelling internally. So I think it's it's super important. And I think, you know, any growing organization is going to need some sort of, you know, internal force, internal, you know, individual. It's like the orchestra conductor while, you know, people on the fringe are, are executing. You know, to a significant degree, we've covered the topic, but uh, all of us know how to drive a car. Uh, but at some point in time, when the car turns into a bus, we need a professional driver. That thing is just too big, and there's just too many passengers to to be put in the hands of an amateur. Um, and the same is true for professional management. At some point in time, when your team grows large enough, um, you do need to put someone in charge for managing and hopefully leading them. Uh, so when your operation department starts exceeding six, seven, eight, nine, ten people, you'd probably need to appoint someone to be the manager and leader of that team. Much like when your firm turns into, you know, 15, 16, 17 people, you need someone who is going to spend a lot of their time being the chief executive officer and leading that group of people and executing the business plan. That's a very, very important function. And if you choose not to dedicate the time and attention to it, then you kind of inevitably are going to suffer the consequences. Um, someone was asking the question, well, when do you have the time to actually manage, coach, and mentor? And it's kind of the same question as we face in life. When do you have the time to be a parent to children? I, you know, I have a job and I have a bunch of other things that I'm doing. So when am I supposed to be parenting? Well, if you choose to be a parent, you parent all the time and you find the time to parent because it's an incredibly important activity. And when you choose to be a business owner, it's a little bit like choosing to have a child. Um, you are choosing to spend a lot of your time growing that business, investing in that business, mentoring people, managing people. Like my dad once told me, if it wasn't for the employees, this will be a really easy business. Um, it's kind of it. most of managing a business, leading a business is about the employees. Um, because we're all professionals, we kind of have the tendency to think first and foremost of clients. But if you really think about it, there's no other person in the practice as important as your business partner, as important as your best employee. Even the largest client in my business doesn't have nearly the kind of impact that my business partner or my best employee has on the business. So you just got to find the time. And, you know, and every think, kid deserves a parent and every employee in the organization deserves a leader. So when the operation department grows, you just got to give them a leader. Uh, what you call that leader is up to you, but you got to give them a leader. And I think, you know, following on from that, Philip, is, you know, that's been, Stuart, I didn't answer your question about marketing, a marketing individual a while back. And, and that was a great example of, of what you're talking about, Philip, is because we had, boy, there was a person in the advanced planning group that was a pretty writer that was helping with a website. And we had somebody doing this over here that had a little bit of understanding around SEO. And, 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 and but what we really lacked was, you know, and we're of that size where, geez, we are just not creating the kind of presence we needed to on a digital basis. And our efforts didn't seem to be at an, at a level. We just lacked the skill sets. Nobody in the organization could step forward. And that's why it's kind of that, what I said about, you know, bringing someone in to do the marketing to say, we, we are absolutely falling short in this. Not, not that other firms, our size, need one but we simply did because the talent was lacking and so we went out and and found a resource that has turned really you know in this uh, relatively short period of time made a significant difference 
and how we present ourselves to the marketplace. And this is a slow bus. It takes a while to really get this going. It will, but it takes time. I want to pivot a little bit because, again, I'm watching the clock and that's one of my jobs. Uh, we've talked about building out these businesses and I've watched all of you do this brilliantly. I love my role as of being a leader because it's like putting together this giant puzzle, which we keep adding to and we're forming something that's really unique out there. But I also never forget that we are in a people business. We're in a relationship business. And to me, some people say the word is overused. I don't think so. The word culture, we're all about culture. How do you continue to grow, to continue to add new people without hurting the culture that I know both of you, particularly as running businesses, are very proud of and really work hard to foster? How have you done that, managed to kind of thread that needle of preserving the culture while making it more professional and building out these departments and bringing in a COO or bringing in someone who's in charge of the case design department or portfolio management department? Yeah, well, I mean, culture is everything. And, you know, I think it's really been tested, you know, during this pandemic because, you know, we've moved to a virtual world and I'm a team guy and we have a really, you know, high quality group here that it's important that we maintain that chemistry and you got to work on it. You know, relationships externally and internally are really important and requires listening and experiences. You know, so I've come up with different ideas to get people engaged and for them to really, you know, understand the role they play. And I you know, used a metaphor of, you know, if we were a restaurant and the role that everyone plays and, you know, how many cooks are in the kitchen and, you know, in the dining room, you know, knowing what the client uh, role was. And, you know, then all of a sudden a light bulb went off and people started understanding. It's like, okay, I understand my role and I can see how, you know, these people on the research side, okay, operations, financial planning, that we're all collaborating together to provide value to the, you know, the end entity and that's our client base. And we got to be creative. You know, I think that it's easy in this digital age as, you know, people are hiding away from social interaction. You know, you've really got to be creative and trying to get people to be thinking and engaging. And I think, you know, culture is everything to a growing business, you know, and it's, it, it it's one of those things where it's evolutionary and how you were before you got to build on that. And that's going to dictate where you go forward and bringing on new people, younger generation for it to be authentic. It's absolutely essential. And I, I would weigh in on that. And I worry, I do worry about in this, in this with the COVID that, you know, we, you know, we, we, you know, we, we have, you know, say, leave your ego at the door and we have a lot of fun and laughs. It's a light environment. We, we try and, we do we we want to have the soft benefits to our to our employees that 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 mean are more meaningful than another hundred bucks in their paycheck? You know, we want them to know how valued they are, and 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 we do events. I'm going out with uh, six or seven people tomorrow with a common interest that we're going to spend the afternoon together. So you try and build this. The, actually, you just want to be an extension of who you are and how you show up in the world and. And, and, and we can lose that and, and during COVID. So I do have concerns about that. And you, and you could lose, you could, we could be losing somebody right now that we don't even, we didn't even think was uh, an issue. So I, I, it, I, I care deeply about it. And I think that's the greatest source of a cultural in, in, environment is you got to just care and you want to have this be the kind of place that people never want to work anywhere else. Got it. I, I, I'm feeling somewhat, I have to be candid and say I feel somewhat challenged today because of the environment we're in and because I just don't know this much. Well, one of the questions ties in, which I think is, is, is you two are best suited to handle is 
when you both chose to take on a strategic partner at a certain point, being Blue Spring for as an investor, did that impact your culture? Has it impacted your culture? Was it a concern? Because again, you both said to me, culture is everything. But how did that impact things with culturally for your firms? Well, of course, it was a major concern. You know, I mean, I never planned on selling this business. I figured that we would continue to grow it and have it succeed through, you know, generation to generation, both clients and our team. Um, but when we recognized the opportunity and saw the Blue Spring model, you know, it's basically, you know, it's an investor or a partner model that allows us to be the best us possible. And I told our clients when we did this, that it's not going to change your experience. We're still running the daily operation, you know, the firm name, all of that. And inside, not only has our culture, you know, maintained, but I actually think it's improved because I feel like our staff recognizes that perhaps a glass ceiling, you know, rose and they recognize that it's a better opportunity for their career development as well. So we're really working hard on that, you know, spending quality time with each other and making sure that the chemistry works. And so far, 11 months in, it's been fantastic. It's been exactly what we thought it was going to be. Okay, so I have a warped sense of humor. I want to start by saying it's been a nightmare and I drink more often. But uh, <laughs> that, but no, I, you know, and I get to say like Mike, you know, I, I never, when we, we merged the firms, I never thought about uh, seeking an outside partner. But part of that was when we merged the firms, we also had some buyouts that we did. And so we took on some debt and, uh, and, and so if you do a, 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 you know, some inorganic growth and you take on debt, now you think, well, how are we going to continue to grow this? So there's a certain uh, financial limitation and how much do you want it? I'm a, I'm a risk taker. I'm good with that. But I can see that uh, in order for us to get where I believe I do, this is this isn't about me. This is I want this firm to exist for 50 years because of the work it does with its clients. And it can't be about me. And then. What is the best environment to do that in? And firms that can make different decisions. There's there's always going to be boutique financial advisors in the country. Great. It's wonderful. And there's going to be those opportunities to find a financial partner that makes sense to you. And so I'm a little bit anal about this stuff, but I looked at 30 and I cut it down to 10 and then I cut the 10 to three and then went to deep and went a direction I didn't think I was going to go. And the, and the primary reason for me was that I didn't want the culture of the firm to be impacted by some invisible hand. And it just isn't there. You know, I'm deep in the cycles on this. And so I, I actually sound like I'm selling. I'm not. I'm just speaking from fashion is that, you know, there's lots of different ways you can go for us and where we want to take the firm. This made a lot of sense. And it has not been a negative impact. I would say probably 90 to 95% of all the decisions that we've made since we affiliated and partnered with Bluespring have come from us. And we've had the additional deep, deep resources to draw on for those difficult decisions that we have to make of a of, a, of someone with a lot more financial capabilities and, and, and bench strength than we would have as a firm of 21. And we, we actually whittled it down to seven immediately um, because we knew that there weren't many firms that were large cookie cutter models that were going to be attractive to us as well as our clients. And then we got it down to three pretty quickly. And, you know, we recognized that Bluespring as an investor, you know, they were investing in us and, you know, our 
people, you know, our service, our uniqueness. And it just allowed us to be able to scale, you know, where we needed to, to continue on and have that succession, both for next generation of employees, as well as next generation clients. And I think that's going to be so critical. And Tom's right. You can't have a firm that's dependent on one or two people, right? That's why we want to build a brand of integrity and value that it stands for, that it's going to stand the test of time. And that's where I feel like Blue Spring recognizes that where the other larger acquires, it's more just an asset grab. So with just five minutes left, I'm going to put each one of you on the spot for a minute or less, because then we're going to just wrap this all up. But if you could go back 10 years in the past, what would you tell the younger version of yourself? What would you do if you had an official do-over? Okay, well, it's about time. It's, uh, don't get respect, but I get recognition, I guess. Um, I, I would say, um, the, the, without a question, I would say a critical personnel decision 10 years ago that I should have terminated, uh, but didn't, I didn't make the hard decision. And, and I think uh, we've, we've been fine since it, but I do believe it was somewhat of an inhibitor to where we could have been. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I would agree. I think that, you know, if, 10 years ago, I would have told myself to put a stop loss, you know, on people and as well as portfolios and things that aren't working. You know, I think it's super important. Sometimes you think you can turn things around or you wait some time and naturally, you know, work its way out. Just have a quick, quick, quick tight sales discipline. I love that. And, and last but not least, Philip. And Philip, you've, you've taught me so much as a consultant, as my business partner, as my friend. And I've never heard you say anything in one minute or less, but what would you tell your younger self? What would you advise yourself if you had a do-over? Uh, figure out how to answer questions within a minute or less. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. I've sat on many panels and I've heard many versions of this question and universally the answer is the same. And every CEO says that, that if I could correct one mistake, it usually is I just had the wrong people on the bus. And most CEOs say exactly that. I had the wrong people on the bus. I wish I spent more time recruiting. I wish I spent more time selecting people. I wish I spent more time mentoring and helping people integrate into my team. And that's my regret as well is I, I wish I spent more time recruiting my teammates. I wish I spent more time developing the teammates I had. Some of them I perhaps could have guided to better outcomes. Some of them I perhaps could have steered away from joining the team be because they weren't the right fit for it. Um, this industry is all about people. Um, the one and only thing we are responsible for is the team that we assemble and put in front of clients. I wish I spent more time with my team. Well, with that, I'm going to turn this back to our friends and thank them at wealthmanagement.com to wrap this up. I would encourage everyone to take a look at the white paper. It's, it comes as part of this. We're happy to give it to you. We're happy to send out multiple copies but I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I think you'll see there's a lot of detail that could really help you at whatever stage you're at at building your business. But with that, let's turn it back to wealthmanagement.com. I'd like to thank our speakers, Stuart Silverman, Philip Palaviv, Mike Frazier, and Tom Fee for an outstanding presentation. And of course, we'd like to also thank Blue Spring Wealth Partners for making today's webinar possible. And on behalf of wealthmanagement.com, have a productive remainder of your day.